0: Now, I could pretend that, that what I'm going to say to you now is something particularly perceptive and discerning, but in fact, it's actually not. Because no, no matter how small that the group of Christians, down to probably half a dozen or so, this could almost be guaranteed to be true of someone in that group. Now, let me just try it out. Is there anyone here who is unsure of their gift. You know, someone who'd love to be used by God but who as yet does not know in what way they might be used. Let's just then crank that up a notch. Is there anyone here who because of what they see as an absolute lack of talent and giftedness or who because of their background, their personality, maybe their lack of education or their past history, is there anyone here who feels that there is no way that God could ever use me, a, a miserable, useless creature like me, is there anyone who feels that's me. Don't bother putting your hand up or shouting out, as if you would, but you don't have to, because you see, the facts are, I know that you're there, because I know that in any group of Christians, there will be people who feel exactly that way. so this morning, I'm not going to answer the question of of what your gift might be, because although that's an important question, there's one that I hope I'll be able to tackle in the coming months. Yet this morning, what we're going to focus on is, is that dilemma of those who feel that they are just totally, absolutely unusable in God's service. And the way we're going to do this is by looking at these first three men, these three first judges who were used by the Lord. But before we go on to look at them, each of them in, in more detail, let me first make one or two general comments. And that is, I believe we, we really need to grasp, first of all, the fact that whenever the word judge is mentioned, that, you know, I think that for most of us, the, the picture that almost immediately comes to mind when, when we hear that word is of someone who sits in their oak paneled cloakroom, removed, standing back from the world, making his decrees of judgment that others then have to deliver. Someone who's got the lofty position of a judge. We well, see that's not what's meant by a judge in this particular book. It is in other places in the Bible, but not here. Now, when the term Judge is used in Judges. What's meant is somebody who actually does the business. Not a bewigged and rogue figure who represents justice, but rather more of a kind of Wild West, Wyatt Earp type sheriff figure or a, a character more like Judge Dredd, if you like, from more modern comic books. That is someone who actually enforces justice. Someone who does what needs to be done in order to ensure that justice is delivered. Arthur Kundal puts it like this in, in his commentary on judges. Simple as this. The judges were primarily the saviors or deliverers of their people from their enemies. Another point I think it's worth just briefly making for your information is that there is a, a certain variety among the judges themselves. For some are major figures in the Bible, who not only deliver God's people by means of war from their enemies, but who also then go on to rule over them for a fairly extended period of peace. Other figures, though, other judges, such as Shamgar in, in the passage we're looking at, Tola, Jair, Jair, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon are usually much more local rather than national figures. They're people who are called to deal with a a specific incident rather than to reign over the God's people for an extended period. Okay, well let's then this morning look at three of these judges and let's see if by looking at their lives, we can find out more about the kind of men and the kind of women who God might use. Judge number one is, is Othniel. And we read Othniel's story in, in Judges 3, 7-11. to You know, the, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishashem, well, something like that, king of Aram, to whom the Israelites were subject Eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. It talks of how he overpowers their enemies. And so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Well, what can we learn? about Othniel from these verses? Surely, first of all, the fact that he he was in all probability from a godly family. You see, we don't know much more about Othniel's actual family than what we have set before us. Yet surely we we would have to hope that by virtue of his relationship to Caleb, his uncle, one of the great faith heroes of the Old Testament, that Othniel's family then that they would have followed in the footsteps of this godly uncle. And so you see, while the last time that, that we looked at judges, we gave a warning about presuming upon our parents' faith or our family's faith, rather than developing our own personal walk with God, yet to the other side of this, the balance to this, is that at the same time, we should never despise or in any way Undervalue Just what a wonderful thing it is in life to have the solid foundation of a godly Christian family, of godly Christian parents. And just what this can mean was underlined for me in a story that I, I read once. It's a story of a, a young pastor who was dying of cancer. And as he was lying on his deathbed, his father and his uncle, both of whom were also pastors, came one day to see him and they visited for a while and then the young man asked his uncle would you mind if I talked to my dad alone now when the father came out after that visit he said to his brother I want to tell you what David did when we were alone he called me over to his bed and said can I put my arms around you I stooped over as best as I could and let him hug me now, Daddy he said, would you put your arms around me? I could hardly control my emotions, but I put my arms around him. Then with his arms around me, he said, Dad, I just want you to know that the greatest gift God ever gave me outside of salvation itself was the gift of a mother and father who loved God and who taught me to love him too. That's how important then a Christian upbringing can be. Part of that foundation that enables us to stand when the storms of life blow hardest against us. So those of us who've enjoyed this, let me say, let's not despise it. And those of us who right now are Christian parents, may God help us to take seriously and fulfill with God's help the responsibility that is ours. But as well as being, though, from, in all probability, a godly family, Othniel was himself a man of proven ability. For you see, if you read a bit further back in Judges, in Judges 11, you find that, that Caleb, who himself was a, a mighty warrior, that he seems to have found some difficulty in ousting the people who were living in Deber which formerly was called Kiriath Zepher. And that's no great surprise, actually, for the people in that area were renowned as great warriors. So in order to have them dealt with, and at the same time to find a suitable daughter, suitable husband, sorry, for his daughter, Aksa, so Caleb then issued a challenge. To the man who takes this place, he said, I will give the hand of my daughter Aksa in marriage. And who do we find fulfilling this requirement? Verse 13 tells us. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. So you see then, before being called to this major task of delivering God's people, Othniel proved himself in smaller things to be a skillful, effective leader. As well, though, as being a man from a godly family, as well as being a man of proven ability, he was also a man of quite remarkable courage. Now, this courage was seen, first of all, in, in his dealings with, with those inhabitants of kiriath Saphir, But later... This is more, I believe, than underlined by his willingness for the sake of his people to take on their oppressor, Kushan Rishastahim, who ruled over them for eight years. For you see, while there's a lot about this man that we cannot be too sure about, like, for instance, exactly where he comes from, we're not told that, but one thing that we can be sure of It's just what kind of man he actually was. For you see, his name, as it's given here in Judges, what it literally means is Cushan of double wickedness. Now, it's it's unlikely, I think, that this was his actual given name because it's hard to imagine any mother giving her baby a name like that. little Cushan of double wickedness. It just doesn't go... A toddler maybe, but not a baby. Now, what's more likely is that the Israelites subtly twisted whatever his name was to give him a nickname that suited his character. But you see, in an age where violence and cruelty were to be found literally in abundance, in an age where impaling your enemies on a spear, hanging them up in the air and leaving them there to dangle and slowly die, that was just the done thing. Everybody did it. Well, in an age like this, to earn the name Kushan of the double wickedness, that shows you just what an absolutely terrible character he was. And taking on a man like this, taking him on in battle, in warfare, knowing what the likely consequences of defeat would be, well, that does show that Othniel was a man of considerable courage. But not only was he a man from a godly family, not only was he a man of proven ability, of remarkable courage, No, but more important than all of these, he was also a man of personal faith. But look what it says in verse 10 of chapter 3. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. You see, Othniel had so much more than a family faith. He had a personal faith. He had not only great personal qualities... But most importantly of all, he had the living power of the Spirit of God within him. And so he went into this area of service, this ministry, this time that God had called him to, not just because he felt like it, not just because he was attracted to it, because of how good it would make him look, but rather he went into this as the result of the call of Almighty God. And it was because of this, that Othniel was there able to be a faithful servant of God and the people of God. It was because of this that he was able to change and deliver the people of his generation. But you see, again, the spirituality of one generation need not necessarily impact on the next. And so 40 years later, after Othniel's reign... Israel found themselves again in need of another deliverer. And so we come to judge number two, Ehud. And his story we find here in Judges 3 from verse 12 to verse 30. And in the, the, the same way as with Othniel, there are various personal features of his life that, that we can draw out here from these verses without too much difficulty. For instance, the fact, first of all, that he was a man with a limitation. And that is the fact of his left-handedness. Verse 15. Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Now, it's not too surprising, actually, that Ehud was left-handed, because if you walk your way through the Old Testament... You'll find that this is actually a noted hereditary characteristic of the descendants of Benjamin. They were normally left handed or at best ambidextrous. But you might be a bit surprised to find this referred to here as a limitation. And as somebody who is left handed and left in every way in my life, it's not something I can kind of find particularly easy to take in. But you know, there is no doubt that in the ancient world, that this was seen as a physical disability. It was seen as a hindrance in battle, in, in the use of weapons, if nothing else. Would there being hints of there being something more substantial, something more significant, something deeper rooted, underlying this, this physical disability? Now, if you want proof that this was the kind of attitude towards left-handedness that people had at that time, well, then you actually need to look no further than the language that's used to describe this. For instance, when it says in these verses that Ehud was left-handed, you know, that's actually a pretty positive translation of the Hebrew. For what it actually, what it literally says is that he was restricted in the right hand. And if we move into Latin, it might interest you to know that our word sinister is derived from the word for the left hand. While dexterous, a word that usually speaks of skill and ability, that actually comes from the Latin word for the right hand. Talk about discrimination. There it is. All you left-handed folk with me, it's very sad. Now we could go on and on. And while society today that we live in, at least officially, is very much against physical limitations being seen, attributes, sorry, being seen as a limitation, and certainly at the personal level, I'm very much for that, because not only am I left-handed, but many years ago, my son Daniel, a little boy, was looking at a card that he'd been given by someone that described there the physical characteristics and attributes of a werewolf, And the only thing that got me in the clear was that I didn't have hair on the palm of my hands. Which, by the way, he checked for at that time very carefully. However, hard though it is for for us maybe to take in and understand, yet there is no doubt that Ehud in his day was seen as a man with a very real physical limitation. And yet, despite that, he was a man who rose Characteristic number two now, to a prominent position. Because we read here in verse 15 that he was the man who was chosen to take their tribute, a form of of taxation at the time, to their overlord, Eglon. Now this was an important, responsible job. Something that would be given only to someone of prominence within Israel. So it would seem then that Ehud had not only overcome what was seen then as a limitation. But who knows? That he'd perhaps, even by the way that he responded to it, been able to use this to spur him on in a positive, beneficial way. Now, now Gary Inrig, in his his commentary on on Judges, he says that many of us are defeated by things in life which may be no more significant than left-handedness. If we do not accept our limitations, but constantly rebel against them, they can keep us from being usable. It's when we accept ourselves with our weaknesses and our limitations that then God can use us. I think a wonderful example of this is Johnny Erickson. She's going to fade that a wee bit out of the, the public eye, but... You know, when I was a young Christian, she was very, very well-known. A beautiful young woman who, as a result of a a diving accident, was tragically left as a quadriplegic. Uh, She could have rebelled against this, rebelled against her circumstances. She could have asked, God, why me? She could have grown bitter because of her limitation. And truth to tell, and who could blame her? For a little while, as she tells her story, she did just this. But then what happened was that she gave herself, with all her limitations, into the hands of God. And from that point, how she has been used by him, I I find it difficult to think of many able-bodied people who have been used by the Lord in more significant ways in the past 40 years or so. But if you want to know now, what I think was the secret of Ehud's overcoming of his limitation. If you want to know that, then it's on to characteristic number three. And that is the fact that he was a man of supreme organisational ability. He was. I mean, everything we're told here about his assassination of, of Eglon, Gori, though it certainly is, and of all the different events that follow, all this... Marks Ehud out as a careful master, organiser and planner. I mean, the way he managed to, to persuade Eglon, to grant him a private audience, the way that he managed to sneak in the, the necessary weapon to do this, which incidentally, because of where it was hidden and the way that it penetrated Eglon's body, actually disappearing into his body, is reckoned to be a dagger with a hilt but no cross piece, and that's why it disappeared right in. All this, plus the way he engineered his escape, the way he then fought the battle that inevitably followed on from his actions, taking possession first, as you see of the strategic positions, the fords across the Jordan, all of this shows him to be a man of outstanding organizational ability. But not even this, as Ehud himself realized, was actually the real secret of his life. Now his secret was the fact that he was a man of deep spiritual commitment. Look at what it says in verse 28. Follow me, he says, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands it wasn't about him it wasn't about what he had done no it wasn't like Othniel he realised that it wasn't his skills and abilities that would win the battle they'd play a part God would use them but rather ultimately it was the power of God that was what mattered well our third and final judge judge number three is Shamgar as you'll see if you look at the passage we're not told about a lot about Shamgar. He's only referred to in one verse, this one verse in the Bible. But, you know, I think we can learn a fair bit about him, just even from that one verse. First, about his family background. For you see, his name, the name Shamgar, isn't actually a Hebrew name. It's a pagan name. It's a a Canaanite name. And his father's name, Anath, is similarly also A Canaanite name. In fact, it's the name for the Canaanite God of sex and war. So what does that tell us about Shamgar? Well, surely it tells us that in all likelihood, he was brought up in a Jewish family which had totally capitulated to the Canaanite people around him. Who'd taken on the lifestyle of the world around them. The customs of the world around them. To the extent of even adopting their names. Shamgar was brought up in a truly godless, faithless, immoral family. The next thing we can deduce about Shamgar is his position in life. And that is the fact that he was a peasant. For you see, only a peasant in Israel would have in their possession an ox goad It's the kind of tool, the kind of implement that every peasant, but the only every peasant, would ever need. So you see, here we have a man, not from an influential, prosperous, important background, not a relative of the famous Caelan, not a man even who by his own ability had worked his way up to a prominent position. Now what we have here, Is a very much down to earth ordinary man. The final thing we learn from this verse is that Shamgar too was a man of courage and a man of faith. I mean, killing 600 men with an ox goad, that's something. But just to kind of open this up a little bit more, we're not told, if you look, that we actually killed these 600 men all at once. He may have done, but we're not told that. And an ox code, let me make this clear, these things weren't quite as inconsequential as we might think. An ox code was certainly no tickling stick because the archaeologists tell us that an ox code at that time was between 8 and 10 feet long and that it was tipped with metal at one end and capable of being sharpened into a spear and it had a blade at the other end for cleaning the plough. So you see, when a Jewish ox then was goaded, it knew it had been goaded. Nevertheless though, even taking these factors into account, it still took enormous faith, enormous courage for a simple, ordinary man like Shamgar to take on the mighty Philistines. But he did it. And by God's grace, trusting in the grace of God, he succeeded. Well, finally, putting all this together, all that we've learned from these three men, can you tell me now what kind of men, what kind of women, what kind of young people God uses? Well, as I see it, these three men were actually very different in a number of different ways. Privileged background, ordinary background. Great ability, ability, relatively unknown ability. And yet, they had two things in common that made them men who God can use. First of all, they saw, they recognized God as the source of ultimate strength and they then turned to him for the grace they needed. This was true of all of them, even of Othniel, who'd got so much in terms of natural ability and worldly power. But you know, this, this same quality, although many would maybe pay lip service, is often, I think, sadly lacking in many Christians today. For many of us, so many of us, I think we seem to spend so little time with God. How can we then possibly draw on the strength of God. And the way that we live our lives. The frenzied pace we live our lives at. Shows maybe that despite our own. Despite what we say. What we claim. We're actually trying to do it on our own. We're living life on our own. We're trying to work and serve. In our own strength. But it could all be. So very, very different. Listen Isaiah forty thirty one says. In those famous lovely words, that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. And you know, within that verse, there's a Hebrew word that's translated by the phrase renew their strength, whose main idea is to exchange or to replace. You see, that's what the Lord wants us all to do. He wants us to exchange our weakness for his strength. He wants to renew us. And if only we're ready to open our lives to him, if only we're ready to admit our need of him, if only we're ready to bow down before him, that's what God wants and will do for each of us. The other quality that I see these men sharing in common is a readiness to step out in faith and trust. You see, they all had the courage to take a risk. They all had the courage to step out in faith to do what they believed God was calling them to do. They were ready to take God at His word and to take on seemingly ridiculous odds. And as they did so, what they found was that the Lord never let them down. They see, I know, I believe that if we're ready to do the same, then God will do marvellous things here also. He'll do marvellous things in our lives, marvellous things in this church, and through this church, marvellous things he can in this community. God can do it. If only we're ready to step out and trust him. How can I say that? i you how I can say it. I say it because that's what the word of God promises and because that's what our God has done again and again down through history. Just listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 26. And this has to encourage you. Paul says there to the Corinthians, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So do you think you're weak today? Do you think maybe you're useless? Let me tell you, that is no barrier to God using you. In fact, that puts you in the place where God wants to use you all the more. If that's where you're coming from, God wants to use you because then all the glory goes where it belongs to him. All you need today is to be ready to draw on his strength and to step out in faith. I pray that's the place that all of us are on this day. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the example of these three very different men. Three very different backgrounds, different sets of abilities, different life experiences. But Lord, they all were ready to trust in you. And they were all ready to step out in faith, to do what you asked. And you blessed them. Lord, it wasn't easy at times. They were involved in battles against fierce enemies. They faced incredible odds. There must have been moments when they were so discouraged and afraid, but they held on. They stepped out and you worked in them, worked through them and blessed them and your people through them. Father, may we be ready today in the same way to answer your call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.